am excited because we've got so much to cover. Uh, the feedback from last class I taught, which was two weeks ago, um, uh, uh, I apologize for being gone next week. I got great feedback on Brent's teaching. Thank you, Brent, very much. Uh, Becky and I hit uh, three continents in five days. Uh, we had, uh, yeah, five countries in six days. We had a, um, a, a full travel schedule, and it required us to be gone on a Sunday, something I loathe to do. But I'm excited to be back. I'm excited to plug back into where we were. I'll do sort of a little review of what we did last week, but not very much because we've got way too much material to cover. So let's just get right into it. The issue that we're looking at right now in this aspect of of God uh, uh, is faith and science and how those two merge together. Because a lot of people feel like they're walking on a tightrope in their faith regarding science and how they read Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 1. Because the, the, the scientific world seems to be shouting into our ear one thing while the the reading of Genesis 1 in our churches or in our homes may be shouting to us something different. And what I have urged everybody to do is if there seems to be a difference between Scripture and science, just keep digging. Keep digging into science, but keep digging into Scripture because the two do not conflict. The two actually work hand in hand. Science is a creation of our God Scripture is a revelation of our God. We can expect that the two should merge into a common understanding of our God and our world. And I do believe that they do. Specifically, I started talking last week when we look at this about the effect that it has on the issue of creation versus evolution. And I want to dig into that a little bit more today as we continue to look at the Genesis story and focus on it as good Bible students. My job today is not to be your science teacher. My job today is to help be your guide through good Bible study. That's all I'm interested in doing for today. Doesn't mean I won't trudge outside my area later, but that's where we are today. When you deal with the issue of creation and evolution, there are two major concerns that arise for most people. The first is, does this mean that Scripture, if, if evolution, for example, proves to be true, does that mean that Scripture is invalid? Does that mean that the Bible has no integrity? Does that destroy the inerrancy of Scripture? That's a very good question, worthy of great study and great depth. I will tell you, I firmly believe I am more conservative in holding to the authority of Scripture than anybody in this classroom. I think I'm probably the most conservative guy out there. In fact, some of you email me with questions and thoughts and ideas, and I just have to email back and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to understand Scripture for the way it was written and I take it to be authoritative in the way it was written when it was written. And so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty conservative on that. I just got to warn you at the outset. That's one reason that I personally am not a young earth, six 24-hour-day creation guy. Because I don't think that's what Scripture is saying. And I think we've got to take it truthfully for what it says. I could be wrong on that. And those of you who differ with me on that. God bless you. You may be right. But that's just where I land. There's a second question that arises. That's a very important question. That we don't have as much time for today. But that's the question of. Okay well if God could just set all of this stuff up. And say go run your course. And history and nature unfold and we become who we are today. What need is there for God? Absolutely an imperative question. I will tell you this. The need for God is huge. First of all, who, who writes the laws of nature and sets the whole thing in process? I mean, you can be an evolutionist, but you still got to have stuff to evolve from. Something's got to be made somewhere, somehow, sometime. 
and left us, it's all an illusion. And I refuse to believe I'm an illusion. Now, there's that need for God, but there's a much greater need for God beyond that. I need someone to deal with me. I need the love of God. I need the touch of God. I need someone to help me with my sin. I need someone to grow me from whom I, who I am. I need someone to hold my hand when I walk through the, tra the, the travails of this world. I need someone that I can look to and say, please work in my life. Please work in this world. Please come. Please save my children. Please save my grandchildren. Please save my friends. Save my enemies. You know, I've got a lot that I need God to do. So this doesn't take the place of God. But we need to start with that first question, not whether there's a need for God, but the integrity of Scripture, so we start with the Bible. And if we're going to start with the Bible, we've got a serious problem if we want to be what I consider conservative Bible scholars. Remember, the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a collection of holy writings that were written over a time span of over a thousand years by dozens and dozens of people and were originally written on scrolls and parchment. They didn't get put into a book until several hundred years after Jesus. They didn't really have books. That's why the Jewish Old Testament's in a different book order than our Christian Old Testament. Same material. But these were scrolls kept in a scroll holder. Think an ancient, I mean it looked like an old, uh, if you go to a wine cellar today and you see those, those things for bottles of wine, that's what they had for scrolls. Hey, that scroll's out of order. They didn't think that way. We tend to think of this as just a book. And so you've got and I've got the job of trying to read this in context. Not simply each verse in context, but within the context where it was written. And for us to do that, we've got to travel. We've got to travel not just from here around the world. We've got to do that. But we've got to travel more than that. We've got to travel in time. We've got to not only get into the Middle Eastern idea, but we've got to get into the Middle Eastern idea as it existed centuries ago, before our World War II, heavens before any American war, before uh, uh, America became a country, before Martin Luther and John Calvin, before Gutenberg and the printing press. Let's go all the way back before the Middle Ages. Bayou Tapestry for you, Brit. Um, go back to before the fall of Rome, before Rome was a big uh, place. Go back before Alexander the Great. Go all the way back to Babylon. Now we're starting to get there, but we're just starting to get there with Babylon. Most people are like, Babylon, when was Babylon the world empire? Most of us don't even know that. But that's what we've got to know and that's what we've got to do if we're going to truly read this in context. We've got to read it not only in context of the words and the verses, but we've got to read it in a cultural context. To do anything less is to disrespect Scripture. Let me say that again. To do anything less is to disrespect Scripture. You cannot say, oh, the Bible was written for us in the 21st century to the exclusion of the people who originally got it. That's a hermeneutical narcissism. It was first written to people who got it. And it made sense to them. And it was God's revelation to them. And if we do not understand it first and foremost like that, then we can't understand it fairly for us today. Because we're taking it out of context. That's true for the writings of Paul as well as those of Moses. So if we've got to read it in cultural context, in my mind, 
there are three questions we can ask that will help organize our thoughts to do that. Question number one, what is the cosmology with reference to how the ancients viewed the universe's structure? Now, those are some unusual words. Let's take it and understand the question. Cosmology is your study or view of the cosmos, of planet Earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the solar system, the universe, the galaxies. Your view of the cosmos is your cosmology. We've got to understand cosmology with how the ancients viewed the universe if we're going to read what the Bible says and use those Bible terms and concepts in context. Question number two. What is the significance of the Hebrew words and the Hebrew language? Because we've got it in Hebrew, so we've also got to translate the Hebrew as well as understand the concepts. Question number three. Most important question. What are the messages that God was trying to convey to the ancient Israelites when he gave it to them so we can understand those messages today? That's what we need to do. So I want to go back and I want to look a little bit more detail. Some of you had some questions. I got a lot of emails about this. A lot of people coming up after class. What is the cosmology, the view of the world, with reference to how the ancients viewed the universe's structure? This is a what was it then versus how do we see things now? If you were here when Andrew McIntosh, the Hebrew professor, was interviewed by me recently, one of the things I had him talk about was how Hebrew anatomy was viewed differently in its function than, he, than we understand anatomy today. In the Hebrew language, your guts, your bowels, were considered to be where your emotions resided. So in the King James, you'll read about, you know, people, you know, and, and the reactions in their bowels. It's not referencing what we might consider to be a movement from that area. <laughs> it's talking about their feelings. Maybe we get there a little bit when we talk about gut feelings. The heart, which we typically use to talk about your feelings, you know, my... My, my, Becky and I saw our granddaughter. She's my heartbeat. Okay. When we talk about our heart for our feelings, in the Hebrew mindset, your heart was the source of your thoughts and your mind. And so when we read about give your heart to God, it's actually saying what we in our language would think of as your mind. Get your heart right with God. Think right about God. They did not associate the brain with thinking. And so when we read these Hebrew words, we need to read them understanding God used their science and their vocabulary to communicate the truths to them. He didn't view it imperative to correct their anatomical understanding of the function of the various body organs. In the same way, God was never concerned with rectifying or fixing Israel's science. God's concern was rectifying or fixing Israel's understanding of God, of humanity, of nature, of how we relate to God, of sin, of how we relate to nature, our responsibilities of nature, of how we relate to each other, of how we treat each other. These are the concerns that God needed to fix within Israel. He wasn't concerned with whether or not they understood how to measure a circumference, whether they knew pi r squared or pi r round. That wasn't his concern. 
So when we read Genesis, we've got to try to hear the ancient world in spite of the centuries and the geography and the cultural differences that have transpired. The ancients viewed the world with what we would consider just simple common sense with what they visually observed. I drew this last week. We don't have a lot of time to get through this lesson. I taught this lesson in Jersey Village. It took me one hour. So don't, don't panic. I'll just leave a bunch of stuff out for y'all. <laughs> Here was the reasoning. This is just common sense of the world, okay? It rains, it snows, it sleets. There's got to be water up in the sky somewhere. There's oceans and water on the earth. It leaks out in springs. It bubbles up and we see it in springs and rivers. But somewhere in the midst of all of that water on earth is dry land. Now, something is holding the waters in the sky back from the dry land. And something's causing the dry land to exist in the middle of all of this water. So what is holding that back in the sky? We don't know. We will say that it must be some type of a firmament. It's the word that's typically used. But the firmament is there and the sky or the heavens seems to be in the middle somewhere. So you've got the sky down here, but there's some firmament up there. And the firmament's pretty cool. It's got like stars stuck on it. And so those stars, now, now that's the firmament. Something's holding that thing up. And it depends on which account you read as to what's holding it up. Some people say that what was holding it up were pillars. You just had these massive pillars at the edge of the earth. Some people say what was holding it up are mountains. There are mountains at the edge of the earth that hold it up. Some people have tent poles. Meanwhile, you've got this land that's existing on all of this underground water that waffles up. Something's causing the land to be there. Something's holding up the land. If you, I had a bucket of water and I put dirt in it, is that dirt going to float? No, it's sinking. Common sense. So something's holding up the land. There are foundations of the earth. What's holding it up? Well, we don't know. Some people think it's columns. But it doesn't seem to rock like a boat does on water. Occasionally, earthquakes. But not often. So something's holding up the land in the water. By the way, the land we also know down here below, the land somewhere in here is, is uh, the underworld. I mean, I even thought that growing up. I thought hell was like down there. I wanted to dig to China. I went to my backyard to do it one time, and I thought, no, I'd have to go through hell. It's just not worth running the risk. Because I was thinking hell's in the ground. God dwells up here above the firmament in the heavens. This was an old world mentality based upon common sense of how people saw things. This was a biblical cosmology that the Israelites shared. It's why when you read passages like Genesis 1, where God says, let there be an expanse. That, that word means canopy, tent top tent cover. Let there be an expanse, a canopy, in the midst of the waters. See, you got water up there, you got water down there. Let there be a canopy 
in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters in the sky from the waters down here. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. God called the expanse heaven. There was evening, morning, the second day. That is God creating the firmament that separates the waters from the sky and the waters from the ground in their mentality. This is, by the way, if you read Job, you get this over and over and over again because Job really uses this language. Talks about how God fastened the stars to the canopy. Talks about how God opens up the firmament at times so that the water can come out, i.e. rain. So, this is their mentality based on common sense. If you go back and you say, and, um, um, where do you get this, Mark? Because some of you came up to me and said, I'd love to read more about this. Where do you get this? Well, remember Israel, let's go back to the Elmo for a moment. Israel, remember your geography here. You've got, if this is the Mediterranean world, you've got the Nile here, and this is Egypt. Right? You've got, this is Turkey. Gobble, 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 gobble. You've got here, right here is Israel. Okay? So we'll put a Star of David in there. You've got Israel. And then you've got really a huge culture up here where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers go. And, and that is in Greek... In the middle or in the midst is Mezzo. River is Potamos. So that's the Mesopotamos area. Mesopotamos is a Greek ending. Let's use an English ending. Mesopotamia. There's culture. That's where the first writing comes from. Because... People congregated into farming communities, not hunter-gatherers and shepherds. And in farming communities, they stayed in the same place. And they had to learn seasons, and they had to keep track of seasons for farming because that was fertile land, and it had ready available water. You don't find that out here in the desert. You also find early civilization like that that's riding and staying focused here in Egypt. So to the south of Israel, you've got Egypt, to the north, you've got Mesopotamia. And Israel's caught in the middle. And half the time, it seems Mesopotamia runs it. And half the time, it seems Egypt runs it. Periodically, you have a godly king and God runs it. But that's it. So now, if we go back to the PowerPoint, I want to talk to you about Mesopotamian matters as well as Egyptian matters and how they viewed the world. But I'm going to do that within the context of the Babylonian Empire. Now, the king of Babylon, and Babylon reigned at the time that Jerusalem fell. So be thinking five, six hundred years before Jesus, that's the pinnacle of the Babylonian Empire. We have a lot of their writings, and we know how they viewed the world then. But before they were the world power, the world power of note was Assyria. The Assyrians, that's who defeated, by the way, the northern kingdom of Israel, but they were the world power going back to the time of Moses and the Exodus as well. The Assyrians were another Mesopotamian powerhouse. For a while, they had their headquarters with Ashurbanipal, their headquarters at Nineveh, their capital. And in the 1850s, Sir Layard from England went over and excavated Nineveh. And he found thousands of thousands of clay tablets. Ashurbanipal was a nut job who built a library in his backyard. <laughs> and they found thousands of these clay tablets with cuneiform on them. And they took them and all the other booty back to the London Museum where you can see them today. But, but we've got those. Those reflect some even older accounts that go back to the Sumerian Empire, not Samaria, like northern Israel, um, uh, 
S-U-M-S-A-M, but Sumeria, the Sumer people. The Sumer people are some of the first people to write. And they've got cuneiform writing, which is weird looking. And, and, and that was the ruling power at the time of Abraham. Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees. That was as part of the Sumerian Empire. That's Abraham's people back at that time with the patriarchs. Well, we've got this stuff. We can read it now. We know. Here is, there, is a Babylonian tablet with their sun god, Shamash. Let me blow up the, the bottom half is all writing. Let me blow up the top half so that you can see it. This fella on the right sitting there on the throne, that's the sun god, Shamash. He's the sun. You can see him in a smaller relief up at the top holding the big disc of the sun. He's sitting there. Now look right below him. Do you see four circles? If you go down, you got the wavy lines and then the four circles. Those four circles, those are stars down there. The wavy lines that they're on, those are the heavenly waters. But you've got those four stars with the heavenly waters right there. And all of that, if you look carefully underneath it, you'll see this solid bar. That's the firmament. That's what separates those waters in the heaven from the waters down on earth. And this was their idea. They thought that the earth itself was a flat disk. Here's a picture of another one where they've got the earth as a flat disk. They thought that the, the, the heavens were a flat disk as well. And that the, these disks just spun around like a record player. One on top of the other. The earth flat disk actually stayed still. It was the, sun, the, the heavenly flat disk that spun around. That's why sometimes you'd see the sun, sometimes you wouldn't. The stars would seem to move around in the sky. That's their thinking. You can see these in the London Museum. It's a pretty cool thing to go look at. But let's look at south. Let's go to Egypt for a moment. Here in Egypt, this is uh, from the inside of a tomb, a mausoleum of sorts. It's a painting of their cosmology in Egypt. This is what Moses grew up with. As he grows up in Pharaoh's house. See the guy laying down on the bottom. Looks a little bit like the Heisman Trophy. Except laying down. You know this guy right there. That's the earth god Geb. You'll see him with his knee up. And his hand up. And his head. Because the earth is not flat. But that's the earth. And the earth god is Geb. Now you'll look. Over Geb is somebody doing yoga. That's actually the sky god, Nut. I didn't name her. It's not my job. I'm just telling you like it is. So Nut is the sky god. Now Nut is standing there over the earth god, Geb. You'll see in the body of Nut all of those little asterisks. Those are the stars. They're fixed to that nutty goddess. If you look over here, you'll see a fella in a boat with a big old disc on his head. He's also over here. That's the sun god, Ra. And that's the sun going across the sky god, Nut. So that we have the sun go across the world. If you look, you'll see all of these little circles. That's the reason that the sun god, Ra, is in a boat. Because those are the heavenly waters. Those are the raindrops. And so he's in a boat going through the heavenly waters with his sun shining down for us through the sky god nut until he gets out of the picture with his really bright sun and then you can see the stars because the sun got out of the way. Now, I don't know how good you are at yoga. But even as a goddess, if I'm that nut, I'm getting tired. Fortunately, we've got another god named Shu. Shu is the air god who's there holding up nut just to make sure that she doesn't come crashing down and the stars fall from the sky. You say, okay, 
But those were whacked out people then. We've got better understanding now. No. We've got better understanding now, but understand biblically they were operating within that framework and that mindset. If God had brought his lessons to Israel and said, all right, first we need to fix your physics and your cosmology. So let me make this real clear. There is an earth and the earth is a sphere and it's oval shaped and it's at an angle on an axis and it's spinning around rotationally and yes don't worry the people on the bottom are not falling off because there's this thing called gravity so everything gets sucked into the middle and it's going around the sun the sun's stationary the earth isn't oh by the way speed of light that's going to be important for you to understand the stars and how they are actually suns far away not attached to anything. And once you get all of this down, then I've got some theology I want to share with you. I'm telling you, those people would not have listened to any of it. They'd have said, common sense tells us this is a crock. One of the best ways I can illustrate this is to give you some information about John Calvin. Are you a Calvinist? I'm a Calvinist. I'm not a Calvinist. I don't want to be a Calvinist. Don't be a Calvinist on cosmology. John Calvin, 1509 to 1564. Here's, he's a flat earther. Say, but wait, didn't Magellan's people go around in 1522? They finished that three-year journey? Oh, yes. But as the people pointed out, you can sail around a flat disk. If the earth is in the middle and the waters are all the way around, you just sail all around. Come back. Doesn't make it a sphere, a globe. Here's what John Calvin said. We'll see some who are so deranged, not only so deranged in religion, but who in all things reveal their monstrous nature that they will say the sun doesn't move. And that it's the earth that shifts and turns. I mean, did you think that John Calvin called you and I deranged? And of such a monstrous nature? He says, when we see such minds, we must indeed confess the devil possesses them. God sets them before us as mirrors to keep us in his fear. God's letting us see these demon-possessed people who think the earth is round. John Calvin, though, still has in his mind not just that view of the earth, but more biblical usage of cosmology. So, for example... If we go to the Elmo briefly, I showed you this picture. One of the big issues is how does the earth, how does land continue to exist just seemingly floating on water? Shouldn't it be sinking like we know water does? Calvin wrote on that in his commentary on Genesis. If we go back to the PowerPoint, let me show you what Calvin says. Calvin says, let the waters be gathered together. God pulled waters away and put land there. This is an illustrious miracle that the waters by their departure have given a dwelling place to men. For even philosophers, remember back then philosopher is our word scientist. That's why you get your PhD, it's a doctor of philosophy, okay? Even the scientists allow. The natural position of water is to cover the earth. It's covering the earth. Moses declares it did in the beginning. First, because being an element, it's got to be circular. He always wants to get the dig in about uh, the, the earth being a flat disk. He's saying if you drop water onto the, a flat surface, it just naturally makes a disk. You don't drop water in it. A water drop's not square, okay? So he says, first, since it's an element, it's got to be circular. And because this element 
The land, I mean the water, is heavier than the air, but lighter than the earth. It ought to cover the earth in its whole circumference. You ought to have heaven, and you ought to have water, and then you ought to have land under the water. But the seas have been pulled back and gathered together in heaps so that there's a land for man. That just seems bizarro. But that's why Scripture extols the goodness of God. God did something that's contrary to science and allows land to exist when the land ought to sink below the water. Calvin, even in his commentary, points out these passages. He says, what Moses said here is consistent with the rest of the Bible. Psalm 33, God's gathered the waters together on a heap, laid them up in his treasures. Psalm 78, collected the waters. Jeremiah 5, 22, won't you tremble at my presence? I placed the sands as the boundary of the sea, and I said, you can't come any further than this. Now, Calvin recognized some limitations here. Calvin also says that Moses is actually addressing himself to our senses, to what we see. So that the knowledge of the gifts of God that we enjoy won't vanish, glide away. So for us to understand the meaning of Moses, uh oh, I have the wrong passage. Oh, it did not get pulled up. Okay, you don't have this quote from him, but if you did, this is... Here, let's go to the Elmo. How are we doing time-wise? Horrible. Go to the Elmo. Sorry, I've got an old copy that we're using. So we're going to... There we go. Look at this. Moses addresses himself to our senses. That the knowledge of the gifts of God that we enjoy doesn't glide away. So to understand the meaning of Moses... It is to no purpose to soar above the heavens. Moses doesn't subtly discant as a scientist on the secrets of nature, as may be seen in these words. He says, Moses wrote in a popular... Uh, Moses, uh, are we still on my... I need to be on this. We're on that? Oh. There. Whoops. My fault. As we say in Latin, mea culpa. Moses wrote in a popular style, which without instruction, nobody had to sit down and tell all of these people who don't have schools, who don't have paper, who don't have books, who don't have an ability to learn, nobody had to sit down and give them all of the instructions so that they could understand what this meant that radically changes their view of everything in the world. Moses wrote things in a popular style which, without instruction, all ordinary persons endued with common sense are able to understand. But astronomers investigate with great labor whatever the human mind and its wisdom, sagacity, can comprehend. Nevertheless, this study is not to be reprobated nor science condemned because some frantic persons want boldly to reject whatever's unknown to them. Here was the problem he had. He was a flat earther. He thought everything was in a disk, he being Calvin. But he did know enough to know that Saturn is bigger than the moon and yet Saturn seems smaller in the sky. And so he was really perplexed by that because the Bible says that the moon is the second greater light to the sun. So he's trying to explain how that could be accurate. And, and what he says is, is he says, look, understand that Moses is writing with the people's vocabulary. Calvin got that. He just didn't understand the extent to which it was true because he still believed in a flat earth. So with that, we say, what is the cosmology with reference to how the ancients viewed the universe's structure? There you've got it. God used the people's concepts of the universe's structure to explain his creation. He didn't give Israel 
a, a, a revised lesson in astronomy and atmospheric sciences and physics and light and gravity and, and, and the geography that accompanies that so that they would have a 21st century understanding of the world. And if we go back to Scripture and we read Scripture in that way, we are not conservative, Bible-believing people. We are people who are anachronistic and who are thinking that it makes sense in our terms and not first understanding it in its terms. If we do that right, we see that God's concern wasn't rectifying Israel's science. His concern was rectifying their understanding of God and humanity and important matters. Now that's just question one. I've got four more minutes with two more questions. What is the significance of the Hebrew words and language? I talked about that last week, two weeks ago. That was where I said the understanding is that the earth was without form and void. That's the whole Genesis uh, creation account of Genesis 1 is that God forms and then God fills. So on day one, he forms light and darkness. Day two, the heavens separate the waters. Day three, the land appears. And at, you know, once you separate the waters, then you can stick the land there. Day four, he fills the light and darkness with the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he fills the waters and the heavens with the fish and the birds. And day six, he fills the land. Day seven, he rests. Now, that's the earth being formed and filled. In that language, we looked at different words. I looked at the word day. I tried to help us see that there are different ways to read it. Look, here's the bottom line, because I'm not going to get through all of this. We're going to have to do this again in finish this up in two weeks. I really want you to understand the message of Genesis. So I'm going to zip through it really fast and then we'll go into it in detail next week. But just skip these slides, skip these slides. You'll find out about the Enuma Elish. You'll find out about the Atrahasis. You'll see that God used their ancient cosmology, but he gave an entirely different meaning. It's like I can have all of these pencils, but he gave us a red pencil in the midst of all of the others that stands out. And it wasn't because he was trying to fix our writing utensil. It's because he wanted us to understand, in, and if we were back, alive back then, understand in our terminology and our common sense and what we could fathom. He wanted us to understand some core truths. He wanted to understand he's one God, not a bunch. We'll talk about how that's different in the other writings. He wanted us to understand he's above creation. He's not a part of creation. He's not some nut job that's the sky. He makes nature. He's not tied to it. He's not captive to it. He wanted Israel to understand he's outside of space and time. He's not captive to it. He, he, and I'll, I'll compare those creation stories with the Genesis story. He wants them to understand he's not a sexual being. He's not male or female like their gods were. And we'll look at some different stories and talk about how that's different in the way Genesis is written. He wants us to understand he's not just some supersized human. That's what their gods were. Wait till you hear about their gods. Wait till you hear about their creation stories that with that cosmology, with that view of the cosmos, they had their versions. Their versions for the waters, was the Babylonian version was Marduk comes in with Tiamat. He's really ticked off at her. They're having a big war. She's a goddess. He's a god. And he cleaves her in half. And half of her he sticks up there in her bodily fluids are the waters above the firmament. The other half he sticks down here and that's the water. She was just supersized. She was like big enough to have waters up above and below. But we'll look at this kind of stuff and we'll look at how all of this stuff goes down. That, 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 that the purpose of men is very different in Genesis. That in Genesis we're made in the image of God to be in fellowship with God. In the other stories, the, the humanity are made because the gods are wiped out and just can't keep working. Thinking, oh gosh, man we need someone to finish digging these ditches. Finish irrigating this land. Let's make some people. I'm wiped out. 
And so you'll understand the creation of men and how vastly different it was within the biblical story. And it is. It's hugely different. You'll understand that that in the biblical story, God makes nature for us. He tells us to be scientists. He tells us to study it. He tells us to work it. In the other stories, the gods are trying to tame nature to meet the gods' needs. Huge difference in that. In the Bible, God says, I've made humans to fellowship with me, not ease of life. So there's a lot we've got to think about, a lot we've got to get into there. And I want to do that, but I've abused you because we're one minute over time and I can't leave you like this. So let me give you some take-home steps. And I am eager to talk to you all about this next week during the Q&A. Take-home step number one, grab the message. Don't get so wrapped up in the trying to make Genesis fit with science that you miss the message. If you want to be a young earth, seven-day creation person that says God created in six semi-24-hour days and it happened 6,000 years ago and what we see now as a result of floods and all of this other stuff, if you want to believe that that's the truth, that's fine. Just don't, don't, don't ignore the message of Genesis because that's not what God was trying to teach those people. And don't try and tell everyone that if you don't believe that, you're going to hell and you don't think there's a God. Because that's not the only fair way to read it. If you want to read it and say those are the days or eras and time periods and, and, and that God made it in, 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 in stages and, and, and that the, maybe the, the forms and the fills, maybe the days aren't ordered and that's your belief, that's fine. But don't get so wrapped up in that that you miss the message. Because that's not what God was trying to tell them. If you want to believe that this world's a result of intelligent design where God has thought through and set the dials of nature so that they're going to create humanity as we've got it now. That's fine. But don't say that's the only way to read Genesis. And don't say in the process of getting so wrapped up in trying to prove that that you missed the point of the story that was being given to Israel on the side of Sinai. In an oral culture. I got so much, man, I just don't have time for this. Walter Ong, go read Walter Ong. Someone came up to me and asked me about Walter Ong last week because they understood that Walter Ong was a student of Marshall McLuhan's seminal on communication theory and talked about how in an oral culture before everybody could read and write, how they would tell stories in such a way that it would help people remember it. Like seven days of the week, seven days of creation. And it's a memory thing to help people understand. And there's a whole element to this on that as well. But set all of that aside. The point is, if you want to believe in evolution, full blown out evolution, and you're going to, don't try to read the Bible to prove your evolution. That's not what it's there for. And don't miss the message. The message is what we've got to grab. The message is what God's communicating. Grab the message. In the beginning, God. Not you, not me. Not anything else. In the beginning, God. And God spoke. And God made. And that's why. That's why. And you figure out how he did it. I'll figure out how he did it. We can debate. But we better not miss the message. And then when we get the message, let's sing about it. Let's sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Let's sing of God's creation. Our God is an awesome God. And we can sing about in the beginning. And we can talk about it. Because as we unfold those lessons, you're going to see, I just pulled one of them out for the third take-home point. We're going to shout the dignity of humanity. See, one of the things God said is, let us make humanity in our image. Male and female, and he did. 
That's very contrary to those other stories. In the other cultures around Israel, everyone around Israel, they said, no, God made the king in his image. Pharaoh's a god, not the people. They serve the god. His projects, people are made to do the projects. They're a slave force. The king of Assyria is a god. The king's made in his image. That's not, that is not what Genesis says. I'm looking at the front row here. Sandy Shiver, right there. She's a woman. I'm a man. Pretty stark difference there. But it doesn't make me any better than her because we're both of the same dignity and value. Because she is made in the image of God and I am. We're on equal footing. Miss Carolyn, you got a better suntan than I do. <laughs> Not a lot better, but a little better. That doesn't make you and I any different. Any different in this world. None. Zero. Zip. Same dignity. Same humanity. Both made in the image of God. Absolutely same. Period. I don't care if you're, I'm fifth generation Texas. Well, I'm really glad you are. I'm fourth generation Texas. I'm really glad I am. And I went to Texas Tech. So I'm like, that's... But it doesn't matter. Even someone that went to the University of Texas can be saved. <laughs> there is dignity and there is humanity because we're all made in the image of God. You can be from Guatemala and you're made in the image of God and you're worth every bit as much as anybody who's in the United States of America. It is something. Now, that, I'm not saying, well, forget the borders and let the criminals in. No. I want safety for the people in Guatemala. I want safety for the people here. I want safety. And if they can't be safe there, I want to find a safe place for them. I want the compassion of God to every human being. And I don't want anyone to ever think that someone is different because of the color of their skin, the level of their education, the amount of money in their bank book, or where they exist geographically. Okay, that's the message of Genesis. That's just one. I've picked out 10 to give you. I'll see you in two weeks for that. Next week we'll do breakfast. Can I pray over you? And I'm so sorry, I've never gone this long. Lord, please forgive me, but please speak to us and communicate to us in terms we understand today your love, your compassion, your purpose, your drive, your ambition, your hope, and your confidence and your control over our lives, over the lives of our world. And Father, may we see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen.